For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 7.05 on today's Entrepreneur. Welcome to the program. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL for Lolando's Josh Miller. Good evening, Josh. Hello, Dan. And this is, of course, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. And this evening, we're going to talk to Mark Walensky of West Style. And a pretty interesting story, Josh. Uh, they um, they manufacture, uh, ba- I guess, bathroom house uh, accessories. Yep. But uh, they go about it a bit differently than, than what's the industry norm these days. And we're going to hear all about that uh, after uh, kind of the next break, after we go through a little bit of news of the week. Mm-hmm. So let's do that. And uh, one story that I want to get to is uh, about uh, the, the, the the obsession with uh, with Uber. <laughs> let's start there tonight because Toronto is uh, in crisis when it comes to Uber. Uber released today in Toronto another, uh, another t- extension of their app, I guess. This is a carpooling app. And we weren't even done being outraged about the regular Uber and UberX. Uh, but now people uh, and governments really across uh, across the world are trying to get their handle on Uber, and Canadian governments seem to be a little bit behind. Um, do, do you think the, uh, the, the confrontation between Uber and government is a sign that, that Canadian governments across the country are, are a little bit behind in the tech sector? I don't know if it's a question of them being behind in the tech sector. I mean, certainly that's always a possibility. Might them being behind in the capitalism sector? Hmm. You know, I mean, it's uh, this is government. This is Canada. This is Quebec. Uh, lots of things like to be regulated. Uh, and there's a little bit of safety net in that for a lot of people, which is okay. But uh, when you have a, such a phenomenal product or service that is getting blocked left, right, and center, whether it's by consumers or drivers in this case, or, and maybe government in certain circumstances, it's kind of, you know, goes a little bit against capitalism because it's a, it's a great product, it's a great service. Everybody, I haven't met a single person that has used Uber that dislikes it. And it's great. everybody love Uber. loves it. There you go. Love Uber. Even as a BlackBerry user, you yeah. love Uber. And uh, so it, it's a question of, and and we've we've heard you know over the years, Dan, we've kind of listened to reports of where does uh, where does Montreal fit in on a, on a you know ease of doing business, and where does Quebec fit in, where does Canada fit in, and uh, and everything points to the fact that you know if we were a little bit more of a capitalistic nature, then maybe some of these ideas would flow a little more easily, and we wouldn't be questioning all the nuances behind it, like is you know is the Canadian government a little slow on the tech side no it's it's capitalism but you know that that should be allowed to to grow and flourish and and entrepreneurs every day you know and we'll talk to mark uh, shortly it's that there's some phenomenal ideas out there that hopefully don't get blocked by the governments and the consumers that are so used to this this grip of control on on some of these aspects and government of course makes some money off the taxi industry and uh, it's very tightly regulated but I, the debate is so strange because people are, are are advocating uber bans really in here in Montreal and Toronto and what are you banning exactly I mean uh, do people believe that that that, that ride sharing uh, that that uh, that uh, this kind of sharing economy can be banned it can't be banned I don't I don't know if it can actually be banned I mean you know when you're talking about sharing music online well that's something else because then you're you're really diverting from the people that created the you know the artists that create it but here I mean it, it's a car people have invested in their own cars they're investing in gas they're spending in the economy it's not as if they're trying to divert it because as far as I know, you still have to declare your Uber revenues uh, at just a question of, well, is it less? Is it more efficient? You know, there's a supply and demand rule that will always come into play. 
Uh, and if the supply is there and demand is there and, the, and it drives down the price, then so be it. Speaking of new technology, uh, this is a, uh, a new company, a new startup called Weave, uh, obviously spelt W-I-I-V-V. Of course, um, always the double I in there. Yeah, it's, it's that, that alternate pronunciation. Um, uh, anyway, so Weave is, uh, is interesting. It combines smartphone technology with 3D printing, and, uh, and this, is, this is kind of interesting. This, you know, 3D printing. This is something that is is absolute. I mean, it's it's here today. It was here yesterday, a little bit less so. It's way more here today, and it is definitely here to stay for tomorrow. Uh, I mean, we'll talk to Mark later. Some of his his giveaways are uh, a 3D item, a 3D bathtub, and that little 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 version one, not, not one that you kind of drag around that I can fit in. Thank goodness. But uh, 3D. I mean, that, there are so many applications that it can cover. In this particular case. They're saying, well, we can map your foot and create a sole that can help you, you know, walk better, keep your posture better. Uh, you know, you've always heard you heard about these magnets and these things. But you know what? If something could be shaped to your foot just right, and you have these high-end shoe manufacturers that really tailor to make your feet, where it really helps people's uh, overall health at the end of the day. Uh, this is something that the 3D application does tremendously and, and can really be unique and can really be adapted to individuals. It's really about individualization. It's really about catering to the individual customer. And and that's that's really where where, where a lot of products should go. It's, it's kind of fascinating that we have all these tailored items. And here's another example of, of 3D printing uh, that is uh, that is basically allowing people to customize their photos and, and bring them to life as as action figures, basically. It's, uh, if anybody watches The Big Bang Theory, you know, there was an episode a few years ago where a couple of the characters made 3D characters out of themselves, little little miniature figurines. And uh, and this was, I mean, this is three, four years ago. This is you know, kind of long before 3D came into, uh, I guess, mainstream. I'll, I'll even, I'll call it mainstream today. And it's it's got that appeal. It's got that a little bit of narcissistic appeal, you know, okay, somebody but it's got a lot of fun appeal to it because you can you can make fun poses, you can you can kind of uh bring out the funness behind it. You can bring out the narcissism behind it, no doubt, but you can bring out the funness. And then where does it go beyond? Great. So you take a picture and you give, you know, Christmas is coming up. How many people give photos of their kids and their families and whatever? Imagine giving out a 3D I guess uh, life, lifelike or look like to your grandparents. Okay, now it's not just a picture. Now there's a 3D image or a 3D figurine of your grandchildren. Okay, maybe it's not as precise and as accurate and it looks like the kid, but wow, well, how cool is that and how different is that? And then there are those that'll say, oh, I'm going to make a figurine of Dan because I don't like him, so we'll start voodoo. But that's a whole other application. <laughs> that's, I'm sure there are a few listeners that might be into that. Uh, speaking of uh, new technologies, giftfind.ca. This is interesting for, for a number of reasons because um, basically the, there's, there's a lot of comparison uh, shopping uh, websites out there, for especially for travel, for hotels. But we're seeing now this for, for consumer goods. It's uh, aggregators, right? We mm -hmm. see, we've been seeing a lot of aggregators uh, over the years, you know, uh, probably one of the older ones, one of the more uh, well-known ones is Expedia. You know, Expedia is an aggregator, you know, flights or that, whatever it is. You have the hotels, dog. I mean, you have, uh, you ha we even have, uh, tr you know, Outpost Travel we had. You know, you have your, your Airbnbs. You have all these aggregators out there, um, but it doesn't mean that it can stop there. And it doesn't mean that it's, because everybody looks at it saying, okay, it's worldwide, I want to go worldwide. But sometimes the worldwide ends up being, U.S. centric because there's a lot. That's where a lot of the consumers, where a lot comes out. Uh, sometimes it's European centric, 
But when you're looking for items and you're in Canada and Canada is just a fraction of the, of, of our, our, our big brother south of the border, uh, you know, it's not always, it's not the aggregator that's great for Canada. So these guys say, you know what, I've been trying to, I've been using gifts, I've been using Google search and all this, all, all these items, but it doesn't really work for my own backyard. Uh, you know, NIMBY, not in my backyard. And, and so they said, you know what, let's do it for Canada. I mean, let's battle, and, and they're battling major, major, major companies. They're battling the Googles of the world, uh, and they're battling uh, the, these other major companies. So they said, you know what, let's just start, we'll do Canada, and we'll focus on Canada. There's still a population of 35 million people, Even maybe not all of them are buying, but it's in my backyard, it's closer to home, it's in Canadian dollars, it's Canadian retailers and shops, uh, there's got to be a market for it. And even if they only have a million users or a couple of million users, you're way ahead of the game and it's a valuable, valuable tool. And finally, uh, this is uh, a bit of CJD news. CJD's parent company, Bell, has uh, struck a deal with Netflix. They're going to bring that service to five subscribers, which is uh, pretty cool because just a couple months ago, we were talking about banning Netflix and Netflix was heading going up against the CRTC and now uh, the biggest Canadian media company has struck a deal with them uh, to provide content right to the screen. So it's uh, interesting that Bell is seeing that uh, maybe maybe it's best we become friends with Netflix and not competitors. For me, it's, it's a really simple lesson. Uh, you know, and, and thinking with the, the hat of an entrepreneur, find another reason for the consumer to walk into our store, mm-hmm. find another reason for them to buy with, buy with us. And if we can offer more and more services under one roof, kind of a one-stop shop, it's just another great reason for somebody to walk in and not have to worry about a bunch of different providers. Do you have Netflix? I do have Netflix, but I have a smart TV, and it's all in the same thing. It's Great. Uh, lots of fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, Netflix is, is the hottest thing out there these days in entertainment, so it's uh, kind of a fun story. Uh, 7.15 right now on CJD. Mark Walensky of Westyle is our profile this evening. We'll talk about local manufacturing on the program. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 719 on today's Entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people. Dan Delmar, Delmar and FL Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you. And uh, this evening, we'll chat, we're chatting with uh, Mark Walensky of Wet Style. And uh, Mark, welcome to CJD. Thank you. It's good to be here, Dan. So um, basically, uh, this is a kind of an interesting story because we, we, we've had a lot of manufacturers on the show, mm-hmm. Josh. But, uh, but Mark is, is a bit different. And this is a, something that's pretty rare, I think, these days to have someone who manufactures here in Montreal. And who stays here and who doesn't go offshore. And, and I'm actually very curious, and it's definitely one of the questions that we're going to ask, and we're going to find out a little later on. But even before we get there, uh, we'll turn to Mark, and just so that the listener understands, what is Wetstyle? What does Wetstyle do? What does it offer to, uh, to its customers? Josh, Wetstyle is a, a designer and fabricator of high-end premium bathroom fixtures, uh, namely soaking tubs, sinks, shower pans, and bathroom furniture, vanities, medicine cabinets, and such. And is this this is stuff that you custom make, or is it kind of mass production? No, this this is product that we make to order. Um, we publish a, a price book and a catalog uh, that uh, is is circulated, distributed to our distributors throughout North America, and in some cases Europe and Asia. Uh, and they order products from that price book. Uh, there's a large uh, breadth, I guess, and of selection in terms of uh, the types of products, sizes, uh, designs, and shapes that can be ordered. And then we produce that on a make-to-order basis here, uh, generally within a lead time of about three to four weeks, and we ship to our customer. 
Now, how did this, now go back to when you first kind of came into Wet Style. Uh, you didn't start, you bought into the business. That's correct. Correct. So maybe give us a bit of background. How, like, what was your background and, and why did you buy into a Montreal business, Quebec-based business? Great question, Josh. Um, I think that, uh, well, it's a bit of a story. Um, I, uh, my wife and I moved here from Toronto in 2006 I was let, a, let it let it be known that people move from Toronto to Montreal. It does happen. <laughs> it does exist. There are good reasons. Yeah, there are, there are a few of us, and uh, we moved here in 2006. And the and the the concept was um, my well, my wife and I uh, had uh, at that time six month year old twins, and uh, my wife wanted to be a little bit closer to her family. And Toronto, we didn't have much by way of family there to to offer uh, offer any support. So we uh, we decided to make the move over to Montreal. And um, at that time, uh, I spoke very little French, uh, none. And uh, I th- we set out on the search to look for an opportunity uh, to invest in and acquire a business that uh, we felt comfortable we could take to the next level. And the opportunity to look at over 200 companies in Quebec um, over the course of about a year and a half to two years. And I was introduced to Wetstyle. Uh, it was at that time being run by a husband-wife team that were, were looking to retire. And um, I fell in love with the the product, uh, as a lot of people do uh, with wet style products, and uh, and the the quality of the craftsmanship and the design, and thought that we could do something with this business in terms of uh, taking it to the next level. And uh, we took the plunge in 2009, acquired the business, just in time for the U.S. recession and sales <laughs> to drop 40 percent on us in our first year of the acquisition. But uh, was was it a long process to acquire it? It was a long per- process to acquire the business. It was a long process to find the right opportunity for me. Uh, and I was looking for something that uh, I, f- I could get, get very passionate about. Um, I love design and, and architecture and beautiful product. And uh, it was a good fit for me in terms of what I was looking for and uh, in, in terms of my interests and also with leverage, you know, my skills as far as marketing, sales, and and, uh, and operations. So I thought... when. Wetstall presented an interesting opportunity from that perspective, and uh, we we jumped in. Mark Wolinski of Wetstall, our profile this evening on Today's Entrepreneur at 723. Professional advice with a personal touch. Consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur. Mark Wolinski of Wetstyle is our guest. And uh, Josh, a pretty interesting story, not only because Mark came from Toronto to Montreal, which is a little bit rare, uh, but also because they manufacture here in the city. And uh, and we don't really see that every day, especially in, in manufacturing in Canada. No, and uh, and it's something that we're definitely going to explore in a little bit. Before we before we get there, you said you, you kind of were negotiating in 2008. The deal closed in 2009. Uh, the recession happened in the fall of crisis financial crisis, we'll call it, happened in the fall of 2008. Did it affect the purchase price? Were you able to get a bit of a discount as a result? <laughs> I, I wish I could say uh, that were the, that was the case, but it's not. And um, we'd agreed on a price and the price uh, stayed as uh, as, a, as it did. Uh, the vendor uh, was, was very flexible in terms of the structure of the deal, which was very, very important in the acquisition. Is at the time when we were looking to, to finance and, and buy the business, uh, banks were were pulling out of, of lending at that time and were closing their doors to to you know strong businesses and uh, and here we were trying to buy a business which with exposure to the real estate market and a lot of the the banks that we were talking to that had already indicated their interest and and given us commitments were backing out so that 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 
prolonged the the process and uh, definitely tested the patience of everybody involved, myself and and the vendor at that time. But we we managed to find a structure that worked and uh, that solved the solution, and uh, and everybody got 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 what they were looking for. In the and then the next year happened, and sales dipped a little bit. Yeah, sales did dip. Uh, they dropped about 40% in that first year. Uh, it was a very uh, harrowing time, a bit scary. Um, I'm proud to say that we didn't lay off a single a single worker at the factory, and uh, the Canadian government um, had a very interesting program, a work share program at that time that, that supported our ability to sustain our staff and our production uh, uh, capabilities, and um, that was very important to us. The, the other thing, you know, we started focusing on really getting our house in order in terms of working on cleaning up the distribution network, uh, improving processes in the shop, improving our approach to marketing uh, and brand, which became a big part of our strategy. I, I guess you were kind of forced as, as the top line eroded and the bottom line was kind of missing or, or in the negative, you're forced to really dig deep under under the layers and say, hey, we got to either we got to either get efficient, we got to find a way to make some dollars or this is a non-starter? Well, there's nothing like a downturn and a serious drop in sales to, to get you focused on, on the core fundamentals of your business. So that, that was something that, that really focused uh, uh, my attention and, uh, and our attention at, at, at Westdale to, to really focus on the key things that we felt were going to be important for us as, uh, as the market and the economy were, were eventually would turn around. And we, so we focused on, on investing in, in the business for the long term you know, don't I didn't buy uh, into Westall for a one-year return. So we, while it was very nerve-wracking, we were really looking to invest and build the business over the long term. So we set out on that track. Does how how much did the culture either have to change or remain the same, or was it strong when you got there? And certainly in this downturn, and and you're coming in and you're making a lot of changes. How does the culture within that organization uh, change or remain the same, or how do you maintain it? Well, thankfully, what's the, you know, the, the team uh, back then and today is very strong and has gotten stronger. And, uh, you know, everybody was very quality minded and and, um, and very dedicated and passionate about what they do. So that was something that that, uh, you know, allowed us to to build on. And it was a good starting starting point. People were open to to ideas. We didn't come in and try to change everything overnight. Uh, there was a lot of good things happening in the business and, and there were some things that needed to be improved. So we worked on, you know, building off what, what we invested in and then what was what was solid and strong to begin with. Did the vendors stay on and support you as you went through some of these changes? Uh, yeah, in some in some cases, uh, there, there was some support, um, you know, at the marketing level. There was some very... Um, Good training uh, and and uh, there and on the production side maybe a little less so but uh, um, overall I think that you know, I I'm not sure you know that there was a, a, a huge amount of support post acquisition but um, th- there was some and uh, and again always interesting that you came you bought a Montreal business and you're manufacturing here in Montreal and Quebec and when we come back after a break we'll explore that a little further. We'll also talk about HR later in the program as well and HR uh, trends for 2016 and beyond on today's Entrepreneur at 7.30. CJAD 800 News with Kelly LaPerry. Professional advice with a personal touch. Consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 
7.35 on today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. And tonight we welcome uh, Mark Wolinski of Wet Style. And uh, Mark, it's, uh, as we were mentioning in the previous half hour, it's pretty interesting that uh, that you chose uh, to continue to manufacture uh, here in Quebec. And uh, and obviously the temptation must be pretty great to, to manufacture abroad. Why do you continue to uh, uh, to do this locally? Good question. I, I, I think it, it comes down to a, a number a number of things. First, um, the ability to control quality uh, is really important. And I've spent, and I've, I've taken a number of trips to China. And in terms of the products that we're manufacturing, I think we're still 10 to 15 years ahead of, of where they are at in terms of quality. I mean, China China is an interesting solution for certain products and for certain types of manufacturing. But when you're talking about very high-end product and you're talking about product where, you know, lead times need to be be very carefully managed, it's it's very difficult to to just uh, outsource and go offshore. Now there are a lot of uh, players in our industry who 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 do do that, um, you know. But at Wetstyle, we offer a, a very large breadth of of product, um, and to be able to inventory all of that type of product is uh, would be considerable in terms of an investment. Um, but it also comes down to in terms of efficiency uh, as well. I mean, if we can manage our efficiencies and our productivity very well, and we can we can remain competitive here and continue to offer um, what I consider to be a, a very and what the market considers to be a very high quality product at a at a very reasonable lead time. Um, and um, and and I and I think uh, Mark that lead time definitely plays a key role because we've we've seen and heard from many entrepreneurs over the years that where they used to manufacture here and, and it was a lot in the apparel industry we saw they the companies that remained still existed but sent their sent their manufacturing offshore but kept the design and and they became a design and logistics house mm-hmm. uh, but they had the ability to plan a season ahead. Right. Uh, whereas when you're talking, you're talking lead time of, of maybe just four weeks. Uh, that's something that you really need to control more on site because something you can't airship in a bathtub. It's going to cost you a fortune. Uh, so the, the lead times, I think, play a huge role and a big contributory factor, mm-hmm. Not notwithstanding the fact that you also want to stay close to your production line. Certainly. And, and you know, traveling around the marketplace in North America and around the world, people, you know, really i think appreciate uh quality and appreciate where it's made and they want to know more about where it's made and they want to know about well, how it's made and 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 where it's coming from and people are certainly at the high end of the market are more tuned in to what they're bringing into their homes um the kind of products they're investing in and they want to know about the story behind it and um you know today it's easy to go you know, buy and find products in China, but I mean, it's, it's really all not that. It, it's not all that interesting. In, do you in think? Do you think that you have a slight competitive advantage because you're manufacturing products in Quebec, Canada? I think that with a certain segment of the market and a portion of the market that that we cater to and that we target, it is important that it's made and in, in, in North America, um, and and that and we take a lot of pride in telling the market that our products are made in Canada and that they're made in Quebec. And I think that uh, a lot of U.S. customers and and, um, and Canadian customers outside of C- Quebec appreciate and know Quebec for for a place where quality products are made. And that was something that I saw when I came from Toronto and visited you know hundreds of plants and factories. And I saw that in Quebec we have a very talented manufacturing base with a real pride in quality and craftsmanship. And I think at Westall we do 
we bring we marry that with 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 what I consider to be world class design, and, and then ultimately that's what we're selling. So the, there, there's no question. There's there's an education component uh, that you have to kind of train the consumer to say, hey, you know what? There there is a a, a signif- There's a potentially significant difference between you know where the product is made, uh, and I guess it's got to fall into some of your. Uh, marketing materials or, or marketing efforts and and maybe we're kind of a, a good segue into that yeah. and kind of uh, what you're doing on a marketing front what's working for you maybe what hasn't worked for you uh, over the years since you since you purchased in the beginning of 2009 well investing in brand and 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 the um, the wet style brand has been an important part of our strategy in order to um, effectively deliver the message to the target market and, and and the specification community the architects and designers that that um, are our market and who we go after. Then there's also you know, educating the consumer. Now that's a whole different level and, and requires a, a completely different um, magnitude of budget and is not something that we're really focused on educating the customer. We're more focused on educating the high end of the market and, and the architect and design specification community and then the channel. The channel, believe it or not, in some respects, is more difficult to train than the the target market mm-hmm. um, because they're they're fed so many products and so many alternatives and some cases not really in a very transparent and honest manner so they're bringing in products from all over the place much of it Chinese product and and um, overseas product that in some cases could be considered copies or, or or copycat type products so there's a lot of work that's done at that level to try to educate the the uh, the distribution uh, channel and the salespeople at the channel understand the differences how they're made and what they're made from. Now when you're when you're marketing what you're educating are you doing more online are you doing more print uh, has it evolved over the years? It has evolved uh, our 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 marketing efforts involve another a number of different um, components. There's a uh, broadly there's a print component um, which is really really m- mostly composed of uh, designer oriented magazines and uh, and then there is an online component which is also more in the realm of design um, and where people would go to look and search for products that they may be interested in bringing in their in their homes do you um, feel that one works better than the other do you measure them at all uh, we measure we measure it uh, by virtue of uh, visitors to our website um, we measure it by virtue of leads uh, that are generated to our website um, and um, and then on the online side well we can measure it through clicks and, and other and other more direct means uh, but we also complement our marketing efforts with a with a dedicated PR strategy uh, and working with a with a world-class PR firm that helps us not only place ads uh, you know advertising is, is one element of our marketing strategy but PR and getting editorial placement and meeting with editors and sharing you know what's new and what's interesting and getting articles on 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 the company is a really important part of our, our strategy now uh, what about the I guess because you're selling worldwide, right? We sell uh, 85% of our sales are outside of Canada, with the majority of that into the United States. And uh, we do sell some into Europe and some into uh, Mexico and a little bit into China. And you sell to both boutique retailers and to kind of projects? Yeah, our business sales are broken along two lines. Uh, By and large, uh, boutique showrooms and distributors of high-end decorative plumbing products. And then secondarily through... Uh, a channel of developers and, and, and high-end hospitality. Where do you choose to concentrate, or do you try and hit all all, all fronts? Well, our, our historically, our focus has really been m- more on the distribution channel and building it and supporting it and pulling 
um, uh, creating a pull strategy that drives traffic to those showrooms for our products. Um, over the last few years, uh, we're we're developing our capabilities on the project side, and we've been building our sales team to to take on more of that type of a market. Do trade shows work? Do you attend trade shows in your? We do. We do some trade shows selectively. We we do more of the higher end uh, design oriented shows around North America, New York, Toronto, Los Angeles. This year we'll be in Las Vegas in May for a high-end, uh, what they call HD Expo, which mm-hmm. is a hospitality-oriented design show. We'll be there this year for that to try and kickstart um, uh, our project sales efforts for 2016-17. So as you're kind of looking ahead with trade shows, and, and, I, and I know there's an evolution and there's, there's a lot of products coming, you're, you're manufacturing, what's, what's next for, for WetStyle? Well, WetStyle, we... we, we are always looking at at new products and looking at bringing in new products. We've recently just introduced a new brand called W2 by Wetstyle, which is an offering that's a little bit more simple than than the Wetstyle offering in terms of product selection and options. Uh, it's also a pro, uh, a program where we're making to stock here in in Quebec, and we'll shorten the lead times down to three to five days for people that are looking for a select uh, select a, a group of products. So that's something we're working on now in terms of developing the, the marketplace for that uh, for that type of program. And then uh, towards the end of 2016 and 17, we'll be introducing some new products for WetStyle that will be uh, new designs and, 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 and uh, new products that we're, we're really excited to, to get going on. And certainly based on experience and the demand and what you see in the market, and you've got to constantly evolve, constantly reinvent. Constantly, constantly have to constantly be innovating and bringing new products to the table. That's, that's a big part of our business. Mark Wolinski of WetStyle here with us this evening on Today's Entrepreneur. We'll have his one piece of advice for Today's Entrepreneur coming up in a little bit. Uh, but coming up next, we'll be joined by Mission Mayette, who's an HR consultant with Floor Landau, and we'll talk about some HR human resources trends uh, coming up in 2016 and beyond. That's on the way, 745. CJAD 800 traffic with Orla Johannes. Professional advice with a personal touch. Consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 7.48 on today's Entrepreneur. Mark Walensky is here of Wet Style. We'll have his one piece of advice for today's Entrepreneur coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, uh, for a look at uh, at HR, uh, human re- resources in 2016 and beyond, and some things to keep in mind. We have a Micheline Mayette, who's an HR consultant at Fuller Landau. Welcome back, Micheline. Thank you, Dan. So uh, HR uh, news coming up in 2016. Uh, anything that you uh, you think is important that entrepreneurs have on the radar? Yeah, definitely. There's a few things happening in 2016 that I think um, companies have to be aware of. One is the new VRSP, so Voluntary Retirement Savings Plan, is going to come into effect um, December 31st, uh, 2016. So you have a year now to comply. So it's definitely something everybody has to look at. So it's the Voluntary a.k.a. mandatory <laughs> retirement savings plan that was put in place by the government a few years ago. Suggested, really strong suggestion. More than strong, it's mandatory, actually. Everybody has to have that or unless they have another type of group savings already put in place, they have to sign up for the VRSP. But I guess par- part of it depends on the number of employees that you are, I believe. Yeah, this year it'll be 20 employees or more. And then after that, it'll be the year following it's uh, 10 employees or more and the year after five employees or more. So it does affect smaller businesses as well. Five employees, you know, is not a whole lot of employees and you have to put this in place. So 
government wants people to save and they're forcing them to do it. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, a good thing to know is that while you have to put it in place, employers do not have to contribute to it. Although, I mean, if they want to, I'm sure the employees will be very happy, but uh, it's not it's not mandatory. And they have to sign up all the employees for it at that date. So, But employees can opt out if they want afterwards, but everybody's got to be signed up for it at a contribution rate of 2% of their salary. So talk to your insurance broker, a group savings provider about this because it's going to be important to set it up this year. And you ha- yeah, you have a year to plan for it, but that year comes really quickly. Yeah, definitely. Definitely because there's different options. So it's good to study all your options and see what works best for you. The second thing that employers should be looking at right now is uh, doing their pay equity maintenance. So a lot of companies had to comply back in December 31st, 2010. Um, As it's something that has to be done every five years, well, the five years is up. So for a lot of companies, March 31st, 2016 is going to be the deadline to comply. So for any of you who are not familiar with the Pay Equity Act, if you have 10 employees or more in your business, it's definitely something that you should be looking at because there's very likely something that you have to do or have had to do and maybe haven't done yet. So something to look at. Now, as you've seen, you've you've done a lot of these files, Micheline. Do you find that the entrepreneurs, it's more documentation or are there there big number corrections that that occur? I know it varies by company, but kind of generally, what have you seen? Well, I have seen, you know, the reason the law was put in place in the first place was that they felt, the government felt there was systematic discrimination of predominantly female job classes within the workforce at large. So you could think of maybe nurses, daycare workers. I could say one thing I've seen in a lot of companies is that salaries of the administrative personnel, um, so the executive assistants and so on, have increased over time, whereas the typically male positions of warehouse workers, production employees, have stayed somewhat more stable. So I find right now in a lot of the files I work in, there are not really big adjustments because Mm -hmm. typically the, the female salaries are justified, especially for administrative type uh, jobs, accounting and so on. Excellent. What else is on the hit parade? Um, the other big change is for the 1% training law. So for companies who in the past with 1 million of salary mass or more had to make sure they were spending at least 1% of their salary mass on training and have been uh, putting this amount on their annual releve one summary at the end of the year. Well, the big change, actually, which is 2015 affecting, but it only was announced later in the year, is that going forward, it's only affecting companies with a salary mass of $2 million. So a lot of smaller companies that uh, don't have uh, $2 million of salary mass will be exempt now from that. So that's good news for a lot of uh, entrepreneurs. I mean, it's great to invest in training, but there's also a lot of, you know, bureaucracy, documentation that goes around it that can help save maybe some time in, in smaller companies. Well, and training doesn't have to mean a, a hard cost outlay. Training is also, you know, as, as employees are working and, and learning their positions, as long as you document it, that can go towards that 1% as well. Yeah, the key is definitely documenting it and making sure that you're including the right types of training in there. A lot of companies don't even know they can include their on-the-job training, and you can, but they're very picky as to what documentation is, uh, is required. Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD 800, uh, more on HR, plus Mark Walensky's one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur that's next. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 7.55, Mark Walensky of Wet Style and his uh, one piece of advice for today's entrepreneurs on the way. But first, Josh, we're talking about some HR tips for 2016 and beyond and, uh, and some changes coming. And we were where we left off, we were talking about the, the this Bill 90, this 1% training. And, and that topic in and of itself, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs have a challenge. You know, the documentation is huge, but it is a government program and it's government 
money paid to the government, we all know the Quebec government is always searching for dollars in every nook and cranny in every business, uh, which means that audits got to come up. I mean, everybody's seeing a lot, of, a lot of audits lately. But while we're on the talk, topic of this Bill 90 and 1% training, Michelin, what have you seen from an audit standpoint? Um, companies are getting audited on their 1% training law more than ever before, more than I've seen in the past. Sometimes they'd be asked, do you have, uh, you know, any documentation? They'd say, oh, somewhere. And they'd say, okay, well, next time, make sure you have it, you know, together. Now they're really going into depth uh, to see how many hours are claimed, what the hours are claimed for, especially for on-the-job training. Um, it really has to be directly related to the person's position. So, for example, uh, we had a, a client recently, the production manager, they were training them to do payroll because it was actually a member of the family who was going to be taking over the business. And they wouldn't allow any of the, the costs because it's not related to the position of production manager. So even training on people people on new skills outside of their job might not be claimable. And anyways, they're, they've been very, very selective in what they're allowing and disallowing. So it's almost as if you really got to watch out not only for the job description, but how you're documenting it and kind of break apart the tasks that every, that, that an individual does. Because as mm-hmm. we look at small businesses and okay, under 2 million or over 2 million, you're going to have a certain number of employees. There's still, you know, and I'm sure Mark can attest to it. There's people that have m- multiple functions, not sure. just they're sitting behind a desk or they have a certain yeah. job. You're, they're doing lots of things. Yeah. No, you definitely need to have like a training plan of what each person is going to be trained on, how many hours it involves, uh, and, you know, signatures to show that the person actually received the training that they are claiming the person received. Now, what else is on tap? There's got to be other new stuff for, for 2016 that people must be aware of. A change in acronym. So we have, we're going to go from the Commission des Normes de Travail, so the CNT, the CSST, and the Commission de Crédit Salarial. They're all being merged as one as January 1st, 2016, into one uh, one organization. So it's all of these you know, administrative restructurings we're seeing in the government. Uh, so now the new acronym to remember is the CNESST. So that's going to be the new organization. C-N-E-S-S-T. Yes. So if you start seeing this acronym, well, it's the combination of the Commission de Travail, CSST, and the Commission de Salarial. Uh, I feel as if I'm getting ganged up on already by <laughs> by, by three three thugs coming after us. Thank you very much, Michelin. Yeah, and uh, and as we approach the last moments of our show, as we do every week, we'll turn to Mark and uh, and ask you, Mark, what would be your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur? Very good. I'd say at every stage of business, from my experience, there are different things that that play into into levels of importance. But at, at every stage, I, I found uh, the clarity of purpose and the clarity of the message are, are are really important. If you've got a great product or a great service and you believe in that, it's very important. I think to today's marketplace is so cluttered uh, and so noisy to be able to pierce through all of that. The message has to be crystal clear in terms of what you do and and why you do it well and and why the market needs to pay attention. So if you can do that clearly, concisely, and and hopefully elegantly, um, uh, you've got a winning formula there. Uh, I think that's great. And it's, it's not something that everybody takes the time to do because everybody is so rushed and they want to get it out. That, that clarity of message doesn't always, doesn't always come into play. And Dan, my quick takeaway, uh, certainly as we talk about uh, fantastic product is quality. And, and if you really pay attention to quality, wherever you make it, it happens to be made here in Quebec, which is fantastic. Uh, but quality is huge and quality will probably trump 
uh, a lot of other factors um, that that you might not expect. So kudos to that. Uh, thank you very much, Mark, for that. Thanks Mark, for having us. Mark Wilinski of WetStyle, uh, thanks so much. It's a beautiful product and great to see jobs uh, staying in Montreal. So we um, like that a lot. Much appreciated, guys. Thanks for having me on. And Michelle Mayette, of course, HR specialist at Florlando. Thanks so much, Michelle. We'll see you in the new year. And Josh will be back next week for our last show of nope, the season. No, we no, are, we are done, done for the season. Oh, it's done. That's happy it. holidays. Okay. Happy new year. Happy new year. Happy entrepreneuring. It's, uh, it's uh, 8 o'clock on CJD.